Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. It's your podcast for you. And only you. If someone else is listening to this, go clap them on the ears real quick. <laughs> what antiques are we talking about this week? This week we're going to get spooky. <gasps> um, I'm excited about the impending Halloween season. I just saw that the local dollar store has started stocking Halloween stuff, so I was in a spooky booky mood. You know, for all for all the fuss I raise about Christmas creep, I am all about Halloween creep. Halloween creep rules. Like, we could start celebrating Halloween in June for all I care. Like, this is great. Yeah, I'm loving <laughs> Halloween creep. It got me thinking about crime. Wait, what? Well, crime is scary. I guess, but... And usually in a different way from, like, adorable little skeleton cutouts. Okay, I wasn't thinking about crime exactly. I was thinking about lockpicking. Oh. Which, when done in your own home, is not a crime. Okay. (laughs) Or when done by, like, a licensed locksmith. Or done by a licensed locksmith. So I decided to dip my toes into skeleton keys. (gasps) Yes! The best keys! (laughs) And, yeah, because I was thinking about how this is a practical issue as well. Uh, a lot of people have skeleton locks that they don't know how to unlock. And what they don't realize is you just jam a skeleton in there. That's the thing. The trick is that you do have to find an entire skeleton. Yes. And that's the whole episode. All right, bye, guys. Bye. Uh, <laughs> Sources include... Skeletons. <laughs> so, uh, so a skeleton key has become a blanket term for any number of keys that have a bow, which is usually the design that you hold on the end of the key, a shank which is the, um... Long skinny bit. Thank you, long skinny bit. And a bit, which is the part that is cut to fit into a lock. In reality, a true skeleton key is a pre-cut or bitted key that has everything in between the two main bits sheared away so it can open a variety of locks in that lock family. Oh. A true skeleton key is often called a universal key, and that's about it. (laughs) Now... Is the universality of these keys why they're so easy to pick? Uh, they're so easy to pick mostly just because it was really... Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the end. There's a simplicity to the mechanisms that existed in locks up until... I'm going to say the 1940s, although Yale locks were actually introduced in the early 1800s. It's just that nobody wanted them because they were expensive. A Yale lock would be a lock that we are familiar with today. The key is bitted in such a way that it actually engages the lock on two ends. In a skeleton key lock, they are only engaged on one end, which is why they are so fantastically easy to pick or to re-key a key to open pretty much any of them. So that would be a true skeleton key. A true skeleton key, the difference is just that it is pre-cut and the serrated edge along it has been removed between the two opening points. Every time you say true skeleton key, all I can think of is that riddle with the two guards at the gate where one always tells the truth and one always lies. Yeah. So now I'm just thinking of like, you have two skeleton keys. One tells the truth. One always lies. Why are these keys talking to you? Maybe you should see someone about this. You should. Yeah. You need to see perhaps an exorcist. I think the keys are haunted. I mean, they are made from skeletons, which... Very haunted. Here we get skeleton keys actually being less actually haunted than bone china. Which is incredible when you think about it. (laughs) So what is most commonly called a skeleton key is either a mortise lock key, also called a bit key, a bitted key. I find those terms redundant, so I won't continue to use them. A rim lock key or a wing key or a hollow barrel key or door key. 
A mortise lock key is the cartoon skeleton key where it has a single flat piece protruding that is cut to fit into the lock. The best kind. The absolute best kind. A hollow barrel key is a smaller version of that, which is hollow. And it is hollow so that it can fit into a pin in the lock and slide over that post inside. The posts that can fit with hollow barrel keys can be made in fanciful shapes to be harder to pick. So it is like a minor security thing. Um, And hollow barrel keys or door keys are probably the most common quote-unquote skeleton key you'll find. The mortise lock key, which is what I'm going to call them from now on, because quite frankly, the mortise key sounds cool as hell. It does. Are very, very simple in design, where the bit, which is the single flat part protruding from the shank, has ward cuts made to turn past the wards or turning obstructions in the locks. So old mortise locks, instead of having pins that are engaged, had the pins permanently engaged, but had wards that protected the pins. So little movable doors that stopped the pins from just constantly letting the door be open. As you can tell, this is extremely simple compared to pin locks and like tumbler locks. And that is why it is extremely easy to get into them. (laughs) So all three of these are broadly referred to generally as skeleton keys. And I'm not going to, I'm not angry at that because not everyone has the time or interest to get into like, oh, what makes all these keys different? Also, it's just fun to call things skeletons. It's just cool to call things a skeleton key, although I pray that if you see a mortise key that you call it that, because I think we need to bring that terminology back. Yes. The term skeleton key, fun fact, is derived from the fact that in a true skeleton key, the key has been reduced to only its essential parts. Oh, it's the skeleton of a key! Stripped down to the skeleton. The parts of a key, as we've covered here, are the shaft or the stem or the shank, the collar, which is usually a decorative bit that separates the shaft from the bow or grip, the bow or grip, which is the part that you hold and tends to be decorative, and the bit, which is the protruding part, which is cut with notches, grooves, or bits. The bow tends to be the most interesting part of the key because it's the part that gets to be decorated. And my favorite fun fact that I found out about skeleton keys Part of the reason that they remained a security standard despite not being extremely secure, even though Yale locks were introduced way earlier than I thought they were, are just because the French had made an art form out of making locks and keys as ornate and beautiful as possible. Hell yeah. The English had actually set to trying to make locks more secure, but it was overshadowed by how much effort the French were putting into just making them extremely pretty and, in terms of locks, complicated. And by complicated, I don't mean more secure, just that their mechanisms looked nicer. (laughs) And that is why skeleton keys and their accompanying locks were common until the 19-freaking-40s. Never underestimate the hashtag aesthetic. Since they endured till the 19-goddamn-40s, which to this day will shake me to my core, given how incredibly insecure they were, is that a lot of people end up with things that lock with a skeleton key and have no idea how to match a key to the lock. This is an extremely common problem I used to run into. It is why I became pretty adept at picking locks. Here I will put in the obvious caveat that absolutely do not attempt to pick a lock unless you are somewhat skilled at it or do not value the lock the thing is on. Improper picking can still damage the lock. Also, make sure you own the lock in question or the thing it is attempting to secure. Oh, I should have started with that. Also, yes, only lock pick pieces that either belong to you or you've been specifically asked to pick the lock of. Being caught with a lockpick kit anywhere but on your own property is absolutely a crime, and don't do crime. The more you know. (laughs) That's why I don't keep my lockpick kit on me. But yeah, um, absolutely only do this as a last resort, and actually just don't do it all because I guarantee there's a locksmith who would be delighted to see your cool lock. 
no matter how simple it is. And locksmiths tend to keep on hand a variety of dummy skeleton keys to open things and can help you identify the key that would open it for you. So I'm going to invalidate the rest of this entire podcast entry and just say, go to a locksmith. They're cool. They know a lot of fun stuff. All the ones I've interacted with personally have been very chill dudes. Yeah, and a lot of them are, are really interested in antique lock mechanisms and keys. But if you are a bit more of a do-it-yourselfer and you want an excuse to go to the thrift store, God knows, I understand. The first thing you have to do to identify the key is, very important, look inside the lock and see if there's a pin that the key slots into. This means that it is a hollow barrel key, and that will narrow down your search considerably. If you don't see that, then it is probably a mortise lock key. It could be a skeleton key, but that would be strictly trial and error because they have their identifying pieces cut off and it would be impossible to know by looking. Next thing is just look at the size. There are tiny keys, which are usually just for jewelry boxes and other novelty boxes. Small keys, which is a key of two to three inches. These are most common for drawers, cabinets, and like music chests and things like that. A medium key, which is from 2.5 to 4 inches. This will most likely be a door key. That's what you're thinking of. That's a door-sized key. It'll open a door. Or something about the size of a door. Can you think of anything that's door-sized that isn't a door? Trunk? Thank you. Yeah, large trunks and, like, wardrobes. At this point, they tend to not be hollow barrel keys. They tend to just be regular mortise lock keys, but there are also hollow barrel keys about this size. And large keys, which, well, you're going to know if that's what you've got. It's usually, like, a fancy gate, an extremely large, like, unique piece of furniture. These are anything over five inches. A reference for me and me alone, like the crypt keys in the 2012 BBC miniseries The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Wow, cool reference that about three people got. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm one of them. (laughs) Who are you, mystery third person? Let us know. Ken really likes to talk about The Mystery of Edwin Drood, so join us. It was a good miniseries. Thank you. I enjoy it. Another thing to try to guess is what is the age? This is extremely difficult, as you may have noticed that I said that these keys were common up until the 1940s. Yay! Is there a start date for them? Like, do we have a range? Uh, Unfortunately, they start in the 1600s. Ah. They start being common in the 1600s. Anything older than that is usually like a church key, and you'll all know they're extremely ornate. Yeah, so unfortunately the start date is, yeah, like a nebulous 1600s. Now, in my neck of the woods, a church key is slang for a bottle opener. This is probably because church keys were large and ornate with lots of, like, fancy bits all over them and could be used to jack open pretty much anything. Maybe? I didn't find any reference to why they were called that. I'm just thinking that they do look like big old bottle openers, some of those. (laughs) If you know why some people call bottle openers church keys, write in antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. We love to learn new things. Actually, fun thing about church keys, they actually introduced some of the really common bow designs that we see on even like modern-ish keys from the 1940s. You have the Gothic trefoil, which is a triple circle motif, which represents the Trinity, or the French quatrefoil, which is like a four-leaf clover, which represents the four gospels. Church keys were made like this because church people are extremely invested in symbolism and they thought that it would protect the property with God, God power. And the trefoil and quatrefoil are actually some of the most common motifs, specifically on hollow barrel keys. Chances are, if you've collected keys or just like to look at them, you might have or have seen one, and they are very popular for making jewelry out of. Extremely good jewelry. I still love keys. Broad statement, and I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know what I love? Keys. <laughs> Keys. Yeah. We should talk about those on a podcast. Someday. <laughs> One really, really simple age thing is just to kind of look at it and look at it and see if it's old. <laughs> no, sorry, shit. <laughs> if it appears to be handworked. This is extremely broad suggestion, I understand, but handworked just means it isn't even, it isn't smooth. There are like obvious tool markings on it. It doesn't look machine-made, and it isn't uniform to other keys when compared. This would suggest something probably anywhere from the 1600s to the 1830s? I'm ballparking because there's no hard dates on this. Contrast to that is if it is extremely smooth and has little mold marks and is very uniform and matches roughly matches other keys of its general size, it's a good chance it was mass-produced or machined, and just by law of large numbers, a lot of the ones you're going to find are from the 1900s to the 1940s. Although it isn't unusual to find older ones, up to the 1700s. One really fun thing that you can kind of look into is if the lock is not strictly internal and you can see, like, the escutcheon, which is the plate that covers the keyhole. If the bow of the key is unique, which, you know, which is to say if you Google it and you don't see a million of the one you have... They often correspond to the locks, which is like an easy way to match up a key to a lock. And that they're designed in a way that means they look good together? Yeah, exactly. They look kind of matchy? They look matchy-matchy. You can also check for a maker's mark. There is a small handful of makers that are famous and did stamp their keys. This can be somewhat difficult because on a lot of locking mechanisms, they are internal and you cannot see the maker's mark. But if you can identify on the key, you can look up locks that they go to and see if you can identify it based on what you have. Another thing to tell if a key is newer or older is magnets. How do they work? Honk honk. Wow, amazing. What a reference. Oh, sorry. Whoop whoop. Even better. Now we are truly family. <laughs> so <laughs> generally a non-magnetic metal will be older. So this is white and yellow brass. Although stainless steel is also non-magnetic and can be newer. And zinc is non-magnetic and is generally older. You don't see zinc being used to manufacture pretty much anything after the Victorian era, except for gravestones. For more on zinc gravestones, check out a future episode. <laughs> Keep your eye on that ticker, because we will be talking about those. Generally, the cheaper the metal, the more likely it is a reproduction or a new piece. There aren't any genuine keys made out of aluminum. It is too soft and bendable. Generally, these would crumple in a sturdy lock, so that is not going to be a useful key. Just think of how easy you can crumple a piece of aluminum foil or an aluminum can. Yeah. Aluminum keys are generally made for jewelry and crafting. You can also check patina to kind of try to guess. I mean, all keys rust, whether they're new or old, so this is not the best to go off of, but patina is important, so I'm going to mention it here. But yeah, brass and iron are markers of older age. Zinc is pretty much the Victorian era. <laughs> and stainless steel I cannot help you with because it has been an industry standard for a reason. And if none of that works for you, um, keys are really cheap. Just go grab a bowl of them and try. <laughs> Here at D's Bowl of Keys, you can pick up a bowl of keys for five bucks. Yeah. Come on down. Come on down and get a bowl of keys from D's. <laughs> I feel like this locksmith cringing at the idea that I suggest cramming keys in a lock and just turning until something works. I mean, we did already tell them to call a locksmith, and if they haven't listened by now, there's not much we can do. Well, yeah, that's why I'm trying to help them figure it out. But, like, that's really the best I can say. A lot of, like, matching a key to a lock is trial and error and just matching up size and pin and stuff. 
you should absolutely turn to your locksmith if you have difficulty matching a key to your lock. Especially if it's a valuable piece or a piece that you are emotionally attached to, because fiddling around with a lock can damage it, which can affect its value, and will just make you sad if you break it. Now, if you're not trying to fix furniture or match keys to your stuff, you might be thinking, what the fuck do I want with keys? What the fuck do I want with keys? Have you looked at one? They're cool. You make a compelling point. Thank you. Podcast is over now. Please go home. (laughs) (laughs) Keys, they used to be a very unusual collection place. I believe they've become more popular with the introduction of, like, pop key jewelry. Notably, Taylor Swift wore it for a really long time, and Tiffany even had, like, an entire line of skeleton key jewelry. And here I was gonna blame steampunks on Etsy. Steampunks on Etsy, I believe, introduced it, and then it became refined for the normie crowd. Gross. Yeah, that's right. I called you normie, Taylor Swift. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. Uh, so, So in general, you do have a lot more people who are interested in collecting old keys. They're just cool. I don't know what else to tell you. One of my favorite things about old keys is that I, I wasn't completely kidding when I referenced just grabbing a big bowl of them. They tend to be sold in large lots because they are difficult to get rid of when you have them. And broadly speaking, they are super cheap. If it's not a rare piece or a particularly unusually like sculpted bow, if it isn't like a novelty or especially beautiful, most keys are going to go for like a buck. Maybe five bucks if it's big and pretty. This is dangerous information for me specifically to have. Yeah, I know. I find, especially with their low price point, that keys are a wonderful thing to stock if you are a vintage seller. They are always in demand for a huge variety of reasons. I believe it was five requests a week every week at the antique store where people would want skeleton keys and we would sell out very quickly. And shockingly enough, not all these requests were me. Amazingly, they weren't all Ken. Um, <laughs> Somehow. But yeah, it's a really great, like, cheap item. It's a wonderful little space filler. I just recommend everybody go out and buy at least one cool key. Let's go. In general, several things will cover the value of a key. Some people like to talk about how some keys sold for $1,000. Those keys were actual church keys. You are probably not going to find that if you do. Cut me in because I helped. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) when i mention like value i just mean if you could get away with charging like 15 bucks for the key instead of just a dollar and that's going to be age what the key is used for cabinet keys are obviously more common than door keys so on so forth the type of metal zinc being a rarity is worth more and white and gold brass are worth more and the detail and decoration like i said The detail and decoration, usually of the bow, uh, but sometimes with old pieces, the bit, like the mortise key part as well, can be pretty ornate. Those you can get up to the $20 for. In part because they are hard to find if you've got a lock that they need to unlock, but mostly because they're pretty and someone's going to put it on a chain. And that's fine. Research into the make, if there's a maker's mark, can be really cool and can help with value or just your excitement to have it. Corbin Russwin was one I was particularly interested in, I believe. They are Asa Abla currently, which I think is a much lamer name than Corbin Russwin. Yeah. But early Corbin Russwin keys are generally for schools, factories, and hospitals. Oh. Because up until they were became Asa Abla, they were used strictly for commercial and institution use. So yeah, learning about the maker can be really fun if you're collecting keys and can seriously add to the value because a hospital key is something that lots of goths would buy. Oh, hell yeah. As I mentioned before, if you are worried about repros or replicas, there are tons. Generally, all you have to look for is that they'll feel light, 
They'll be made of a cheap metal like aluminum. And a lot of them will have a painted surface made to look like gray pitted metal. Oh, so they'll be flea market flip style shellacked to look old. Yes, that is very common. And that is a fun little look into the magical, mystical, spooky world of skeleton keys. Now you have a neat fact to bust out at parties, and well, actually, someone when they talk about skeleton keys. Yay! I'm excited to learn that they're so cheap and plentiful. Yeah, they are really cheap and plentiful, and especially in, like, at Brimfield. Oh, boy, you can go ham. I am tentatively excited for Brimfield. Oh, God, I am so excited for Brimfield. And now you have a fun fact to bust out at parties if, for some reason, your weird host is a nerd and mentions skeleton keys, and you can be like, mm, well, actually, a skeleton key is only this kind of key. And then not get invited to that party ever again. But I don't know that will make you the most fun person at the party, yeah. Be better. <laughs> be better, by keys. Be better, by keys. Sources for today include hardware.idn-inc.com, skeleton barrel bit keys, andersonlock.com, collecting antique keys, lockpickworld.com, collections, skeleton keys. I have that one bookmarked for reasons. Just cause. Historyofkeys.com. History of Keys. Collectorsweekly.com. Unlocking the riddle of skeleton key necklaces. Antiques.lovetoknow.com. Antique skeleton key identification guide. TXAntiqueMall.com. Key identification value guide. Resalvage.com. Types of vintage keys and how to identify them. And Collectorsweekly.com. Tools and hardware slash keys. If you would like to suggest an episode topic and just say hello... You can email us directly, antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked hearing about keys and would like us to talk about different kinds of things in general, feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. Any review helps get our dulcet tones into a variety of ears. Reviews such as this one from The Feisty Girl 1991. Irreverent humor and antiques. Could life get any better? I love Ken and Dean. I've been a Patreon supporter since the days when Ken used to read our names off at the end of each episode. I've loved antiques since I was young and my parents and grandparents were collectors. This show gives me the side of antiques I never knew I was missing until I found it. Aww. Cheers for another 100 episodes. Heart emoji. Ah, I love- thank you so much! Thank you so much! So sweet. And thank you especially to getting us to the point where it is no longer feasible to read off all our patrons, that it's a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> We also have an Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks, where you can find a wide variety of vintage goods and t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them. At present, we have a vintage surgical clamp, which is good fun. Oh, that is a nice one. And we also have fabulous, elegant, vintage lace clown doily. <laughs> Why, yes, yes, we do. I'm very fond of that piece. With the description, I can only assume D wrote in a fugue state because it reads as follows. A lovely little lace doily slash placemat slash runner, charmingly made to resemble two vintage French clowns cavorting and making merry. This is a wonderful home decor element, whether used as intended, as a cute base for a clown doll, or framed on your wall. This can also be used as a clown summoning circle, but this is only recommended for advanced clownomancers and clown wranglers, as if you summon a very powerful clown, you might not be able to appropriately contain it. <laughs> Uncontained, powerful clowns may roam the neighborhood providing performances even when there is no children's birthday parties. <laughs> the lace mat is in great condition with very minimal yellowing slash discoloration. No tears or snags to mar its beauty. A fantastic gift for a clown enthusiast, collector, clownomancers, or just that one guy you never really know what to buy for. 
And if you would like to see this powerful clownomancy artifact for yourself, head on over to etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks. Soon, actual clowns that I've summoned. Excellent. Fun fact, I was taking pictures of the next clown, and like I left for a couple of hours, and I came back, and there was another fucking clown on my desk, and I'm starting to get... Like, actually scared. Hey, D? Yeah? D, please say psych. No, I can't. I cannot psych this one out. It's still here on my desk. Like, it's cute. It's like a little planter. You cannot actually be haunted by clowns. There must be an explanation, but I don't think it was the kittens this time. If you'd like to listen to deleted scenes or our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire, you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.